girls, welcome to the latest edition of the Me and My Friends podcast. We're recording live again from my apartment in sunny southeast Portland where we're having a wonderful 80 degree day today. My guest is Bill Lasher. Uh, he has a website, BillLasher.com. No, that's probably not what it is, but we'll find out in a moment when I ask him. And um, we're here today to talk about his career, um, where he's been, what he's done. I know him through very strange sources. I believe I met him on uh, Twitter for the most part. Uh, we'll get into that as well. Um, very 21st century of us. Uh, Lasher's work appears in The Guardian, The Pacific Standard, High Country, News and lots of Oregon publications, including Portland Monthly Magazine. He's done some work with Oregon Public Broadcasting. He has a great photo on his website being interviewed by one of the local news stations. Bill Lasher, welcome to the Me and My Friends podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And so, what do you remember about? Um, us first meeting like how did we ever get in touch with each other uh i'm not quite sure what the uh, first subject was but i remember like you said it was something on twitter it was a you know perhaps it was involving the picture on my website and it's that's when i was declared uh, neighbor to goats by yeah. k2 <laughs> and it probably was the most viral thing that ever existed to me because i tweeted something about it being the most portland photo ever with me visiting the belmont goats when they were still on belmont and uh sporting a beard and a yellow mm -hmm. biking jacket and uh yeah thick rimmed like glasses the day you became a portland icon and, and, Indeed. I think you may have influenced the style of the entire city after that. Oh, I'm sure I did. I mean, I think I'm responsible <laughs> for goats being so popular. And, uh, you know, the, the secret about that photo that no one really knows is that day when I was coming through to see the goats, I was stopping on my way back home from a friend's house uh, where he was teaching me how to brew beer for the first time. And so I feel like brewing beer was a very distinct Portland experience yeah and and so those of us or those of the audience members who don't know the uh, belmont goats existed because there was this big um vacant lot in the middle of southeast portland where there's tons of urban activity going on and i believe there used to be a building there that burned down and then they just kind of kept it as an open lot and um the owner of the lot would hire a guy with a team of goats to come in and just munch away on whatever vegetation was growing. Um, and you always kind of looked at that spot and wondered, you know, like that, that spot is not going to stay vacant for long. And now, um, if you've been by there recently, there's a gaping hole and a plan for a mammoth new condo with a mammoth new grocery store to go in there. And that's just kind of a sign of the times here in Portland. Yeah, I think it's actually under construction now. I feel like the last time I was over there, there was work being done, actual stuff being put in. Uh, it's I was gone for about five weeks. And I came mm -hmm. back and I saw things there, which has been new because there was that hole for. In fact, for a while, the goats still lived there and would climb into the hole. Oh, really? Yeah, it was that was always a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, that sounds dangerous too for the goats. Um, and so the fact that we kind of first became um, friends via Twitter does that make us giant nerds? A little bit, but you know, the other reason we became friends was because I lived not far from your uh, 
your workplace and you have big giant windows at your workplace. And yeah. So I think there was that, like I made, I put two and two together when you started commenting on the, whether it was the goat thing or something else. And, and, uh, and I was like, Hey, you're the people that always kind of laugh at me when I walk by. Cause I'm always <laughs> so curious, like what's going on. And, uh, and, and so I think I'm probably the bigger nerd for, for remembering that and knowing that, but, but yeah, I think meeting people on Twitter is, is a pretty nerdy way to become friends. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something that you would, um, ever put on an online dating profile that that's how you meet friends. Um, just for the, uh, the listeners out there. Um, and, and so, uh, Bill, you have some really interesting things that you're working on in your life right now. Um, and, and I know from Twitter that you recently, uh, had an experience traveling to Southeast Asia. Would you call that part of the world Southeast Asia or, or, you know, would you just address it as the Philippines and China respectively? Well, I guess, I mean, the parts of eight, uh, parts of China I was in, some of them were not the Southern parts, but I guess that's the most Southeast on the continent you can go. I mean, it's further east at least and and if i'm in you know i was in hong kong and guangzhou it's southeast and the philippines are definitely southeast um yeah why were you there what were you doing so i was in um i was in both countries sort of tracking down the footsteps and the sources of uh i'm doing a book that has to do with people who fell in love in those places while covering world war ii and uh so i was kind of going to the places where they went seeing what they saw and seeing both uh whatever remnants of what they saw and experienced might still exist despite 75 years of history that has come, but also seeing how the places they were changed. I mean, they changed even more rapidly than the spot where the Belmont goats are have changed. Yeah. 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 That's what you always hear out of China is that they, they're building cities so fast. I mean, aren't they building like eco cities overnight? Um, I mean, I, I'm not really that familiar with all that's happening in China, but I just hear these crazy stories of new developments popping up just brand new cities i mean as far as i understand it they are i don't know every little detail about modern china because my brain's been so focused on the wartime china mm-hmm. but i can see a lot of it i mean you see construction happen i was in a city called chongqing which is in the center center of china southwest of china and uh it's, uh, you know, by some measures, it's the largest city in China because they, it's this entire huge municipality that they count into that population count. So it's 30 million people. And wow. it's, um, but it's this huge city that was the capital of China during the war. And it, you know, you, it looks like when you're there that they're digging up the city and just building new buildings every single day. It looks like there's going to be a new skyscraper. You know, the morning you wake up, that wasn't there the day before. It's so fast. There's cranes everywhere. There's rubble piles of the old buildings. It's it's immense, and it's how fast it's going. And from everything I know, it's true all over the country. Uh, you know, the, the blogs and the articles and stuff I read about other Chinese cities definitely make that clear that it's it's developing quickly. I do know that there's they're in a bit of an economic slowdown in China, so maybe it's not happening quite as fast anymore, but it's really a rapidly changing place. One thing that happened to me on this trip was uh, I found out about a, a new high-speed rail line. Uh, I was trying to get to this little tiny village in this um, um, in the province of Guangxi, and uh, I didn't know how I was going to get there because it was from the town I was staying, uh, Shenzhen, which is also a completely modern city that just sort of appeared on the map in uh, uh, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and now it's this giant city. But anyway, I was I was in that city and I was trying to get to the small province and I didn't know what I was going to do. It was going to take 13 hours or 16 hours on the bus. And I was kind of freaking out and I was staying with a friend of mine and he's like, you know, 
you should try to get there because you've been wanting to get to this little place and you're, you're on an adventure and, and you should follow up on that adventure. So I went one more time online and found out that there's a brand new high-speed rail line that I was there in March and that this high-speed rail line had been opened in December. Wasn't even online on all the high-speed wow. rail, like rail, you know, guide websites where you order tickets and things like that. Uh, but, you know, I got tickets out there and the the it was so new that you get to the train station in the town that I was trying to get to, and the train station is miles and miles outside of the center of town. It's brand new and modern and beautiful and, you know, really just sort of this, this sign of this infrastructure development that they're having. Um, but it's surrounded by dirt, just open fields of dirt and a couple trees. And then, and then you go through miles and miles of fields and farms that are there and finally get to the center of this, this town called Guiping that I was, that I was going to. And, uh, it, it, but it's, it's so new that not only does this train station not appear on very many maps, but you, you just don't even see a sign of it anywhere. And, um, and it just sort of appears out of nowhere, but that's, I guess the case all over the country. That's really fascinating. And so you mentioned your book and you said that it's, that you're kind of following up on, um, some, uh, love stories from the world war two era. Uh, how did you, how do you pick the people that you're following up on? So the couple involved are known as Melville and Annalie Jacoby, and they worked for time magazine in China and in the Philippines and, uh, some other publications as well at different times. And they met, uh, well, they had known each other in college, but uh, Melville was my grandmother's cousin. Oh. And so that's how I knew about this whole sort of story that I've been uncovering. But I didn't know about him until I was, I don't know, 24 or 25. And she started telling me stories about her cousin, the war correspondent, when I was starting my career as a journalist. And I've been sort of unraveling it ever since. Wow. And... Uh and and you were telling me a moment ago about your own career in journalism. You went to the Annenberg School of Communication at uh, USC, and um, I'm just curious how did you how did you become interested in becoming a journalist? Well, I mean, it goes back probably to when I was maybe a sophomore in college, uh, the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year. Uh, sorry, high school. I uh, had one of those assignments for my world history class to, you know, read the newspaper throughout the summer as I prepared for entering school, just like you would have a English AP, you know, summer reading thing. And I had to read the newspaper every day and write journal entries about it. But I was a procrastinator and a slacker on this assignment. So got to be the last week of the summer and I still hadn't done it. And I had this big stack of newspapers from the whole summer in my, in my bedroom. And I was like, well, I got to do this, you know, it's, uh, it's, school starting and I like history. So I want to show up with and make a good mark on this history class. So I started reading, it was the LA times. And at the time, this was the summer of 1995, the, the war in Bosnia was sort of at its height. And, uh, the, um, also the war in, um, the former Zaire and the democratic Republic of Congo now was, was starting to erupt. And I was following both of these conflicts throughout the sort of course of the summer, but in a sort of compressed one week period and uh sort of following these events as if i was reading a novel or as if i was reading a book that was sort of treating this thing that was happening in this dramatic i mean it wasn't meant to be dramatic but reading it in such a compressed way made you feel well this is something that's happening in the world that that you feel like you'd read about somewhere else you know in, in a novel or in a in a movie um 
I was fascinated, not just by what was happening in those places, and as horrifying as what was happening in those places, but also by the fact that it was someone's job to go and get these materials and relay them to you know readers back home and tell and i ever since then i've sort of been entranced by this idea that that there are people whose job it is to look at things that are happening in the real world and telling others this is what's really happening this is this is something important that you should know about Mm -hmm. and and they're risking their lives to do that and i always wanted to to follow those sort of footsteps and and become someone like that i've never been a foreign correspondent but i had certainly had dreams of doing that you know life changed things throughout you know throughout the path but um you know i have been a journalist since then um and and yeah it sort of evolved from there i found out you know when i was a teenager i found that my dad was a lawyer and i found out that when but when he was in college he originally wanted to be a journalist as well and it was sort of important to me too that i was like that's kind of cool that i want to do this thing that he did but yeah yeah, that Bosnian story is really fascinating. It's it's one that I've been involved in, um, you might say, uh, for the last couple of years now. I, I worked with a client who um, wrote an amazing book titled Fools Rush In about his own experience going there during the war, not necessarily as a um, journalist, but he kind of turned into one when he saw kind of the horrors going on and how the media wasn't really reporting it the way that he um, thought would be accurate and the world wasn't really paying attention to the conflict in, in the way that they should, because it it was, it was a major war in kind of the heart of Europe and, and somehow everybody was just so disconnected, um, to that. But anyway, through his work, I've just met a lot of, uh, Bosnian folks, um, in the city of Portland. There's actually a huge community here. Um, and, it's interesting. They don't really make themselves known. They're just kind of trying to move on with their lives, you know? Um, yeah. What brought them here? What made them so? It, it's just, you know, after the war, I think, or during the war, as people were escaping the conflict, they would come to America. Um, I don't know exactly how it worked. Maybe they're granted green cards or something, but they would end up in Los Angeles and then somehow end up here. I mean, it must've been some sort of, um, person in their community who maybe had a foothold that helped come up, bring them up here to then, um, uh, you know, try to make a go of it. And, and yeah, you just meet the most amazing people with the most amazing stories. And, um, we have, we have some local restaurants here in town. Um, the pub 442, the soccer mm-hmm. bar that's owned by a Bosnian guy. Um, there's the, the two brothers cafe up at 39th and, um, Belmont and then Marino's Adriatic cafe on division that's owned by a Bosnian guy and they make the best, uh, cappuccinos in town. I don't know that we're on division. Mm, 44th, maybe something like that. Oh, I gotta check that out. I'm always looking for a new place to get a cappuccino or something. Yeah. And so have you been to any, um, conflict zones following your pursuit of journalism you know i haven't and i it's it's interesting to me that i haven't i mean the um i think the realities of life are you know you think you're going to go one direction and you you end up going a different direction and i i always thought i would and i think when i was in my early 20s i was in college and i was i did all these college you know i I went to oberlin college in ohio and they didn't have a journalism program but i worked on the student newspaper there and all my papers had something to do with journalism and maybe i was a history major so they often had to do with sort of the the sort of way that 
media or journalism was used to formulate national identity and articulate national identity in some historic sense. Um, and the closest I probably got to reporting from a conflict zone was in 2001, in the spring, I was, uh, I edited a section that I developed at the, uh, the Oberlin Review, the weekly paper there called the world and nation section. My interest being like getting this sort of weekly student newspaper that was so focused on campus events to look outward and interpret national events with sort of the lens of what was happening on campus. I mean, I was also sort of like an eager young 20 year old who had very idealistic ideas of what that should look like and got in arguments with my fellow uh, staffers all the time. But during that time, there were a lot of anti-globalization protests happening. You know, it was a little bit after the big protests in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And I think in the summer of 2001, or in the spring of 2001, there was a huge, huge protest against the proposed free trade of the Americas agreement in um, in Quebec City, Canada, and that devolved very quickly into a conflict between protesters and police who were firing uh, round after round of uh, tear gas and mace and um, cordoning off protesters, and they had a huge... It, this was... About six months before September 11th, but there was this huge security zone that was sort of a, of the sort that we see now after September 11th, where there were you know miles and miles away from where the meeting was happening for this. Uh, it was called the Summit of the Americas, uh, where many heads of state from the Western Hemisphere were. They they had coordinated off, and it was it was probably the closest thing to a conflict zone I've seen, and it was very passionate and and um, uh, you know I saw things like tear gas canisters being lobbed right into crowds of people without any kind of defenses. I saw water cannons sprayed against people and then wow. I saw people throwing them back. But, you know, after, shortly after that, actually, that sort of got me into diving into a more sort of political realm in my life and getting more active and being sort of frustrated with what I'd seen there. So I spent many years after that being sort of, oh, maybe I'll explore politics and be grassroots. Yeah. But then I got also got sick of that because it was so dogmatic. And so... <laughs> yeah like my way or the highway. So it took many, it took a good four or five years before I got back into journalism. And by that point I was covering other things and I was going where the work was, which was covering local news and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to return to your book again no for a moment. Um, you, you were in China. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious what the subject's connection was to China then. So he went first as a, the guy I'm writing, the guy was my grandma's cousin, Mel. He went as a, exchange student when he was yeah when he was 19 or right he got there right actually got there the day he turned 20 to um to a school in southern china in guangzhou which was then called canton and then he kind of be, he didn't know what he was doing with his life and he became fascinated with it so by the time he left the war in uh china had just got started uh you know japan had just invaded oh, wow. and uh the fighting had started outside of beijing and he was there he got to Beijing maybe a week after the fighting started. And at that point, you know, the U.S., of course, wasn't involved. This is in the summer of 1937. Oh, wow. And he went home just so impassioned and so, like, fervent about international affairs and particularly about what he'd seen happening in China. He, after he was in China, he went to China for, I mean, to Japan for a brief time. Uh, and ever since then he went back to he went to stanford he went back to stanford to write sort of the same thing that you were saying about you know no one was paying attention to the war in bosnia well back then no one was paying attention to the war in china right and he was really sort of 
riled up about that, as were many other young people. And he uh, worked with another student in Stanford to write a master's thesis about the way that Western newspapers were covering that. And that got a lot of attention. So as soon as he finished his master's thesis, he went back to China to work as a freelance journalist. And first he was in Shanghai briefly, and then he got work very quickly in Chongqing, which had recently been made the capital of, of China for the war because Shanghai had been captured by the Japanese. Well, Shanghai was never the capital, but Nanjing had been captured by the Japanese. And uh, then uh, Wuhan and uh, and they had slowly moved the capital inland. And he was there at a time when sort of all these Western journalists were there and where it was at one point known as the uh, the most bombed city in the world. Wow. Uh, and, you know, then that was just his life was covering the war. It's really crazy to think about him traveling back and forth through Japan, China, America in those days. I mean, that must have been a major pain in the ass for one, but it just seems incredibly dangerous. I mean, it was to some degree, and he was suspe- suspected in both countries, in, in China and Japan, when he was there as a college student of being a spy because he was going to all these, you know, remote parts of the country and, uh, you know, kind of interested in taking a lot of pictures and, and just seeing what was going on. And he got a lot of harassment for it all to the point at which, you know, uh, after he left Chongqing, he went to Vietnam for a while to what was, you know, then French Indochina and was also seeing what was going on there and got arrested by the Japanese for allegedly for spying and, uh, uh, but it's caused a sort of brief instance. This was in the fall of 1940. But it, things like that were happening all the time. Plus, there were the bombs going off. Plus, mm-hmm. it was remote, and you know, people didn't see Westerners very often. It's people still. I mean, when I was in China, people are so like sort of fascinated to see a white guy. Really. And so, if if that's true now, I only can imagine what it was like in. 1937, 1940, 1941, when he was there, you know, it was, it would have been really shocking in some of the rural places that he went. And so did he also go to the Philippines? I mean, I I believe you said that you went there as part of your trip as well. Yeah, he went, so he ended up back in China one more time uh, in 1941. And he quickly, he he had met Henry Luce, the founder of Time Magazine on a plane headed out to China. And Henry Luce instantly was so impressed by him that he hired him to work for Time. And while he was there, he uh, um, he got more and more sort of in with the Time Magazine operation, and they could everyone could see that the war was about to get started, the war between the U.S. and Japan, and everyone thought that it would get started in the Philippines. So Time transferred him from Chongqing to Manila to be there when it happened and to be ready to, to cover the war. And shortly thereafter, uh, Carl and Shelley Maidens, Carl was a photographer and Shelley was a writer came to sort of do the photography side of things and do write for life magazine about it. Um, and also Mel's wife, Annalie, who he had just proposed to before he left came out to the Philippines. And so they were all there when the war started and they were there to report on it and cover it for time in life magazine. Wow. That's really akin seemingly to, you know, the Nazis walking through Paris with Edward R. Murrow sitting there, you know, barking out his tail from, you know, an apartment somewhere. I mean, I think that was the idea was to have people on the ground to give them the firsthand accounts. And it, you know, was from everything I've learned so far, it was important too, because very few people that were there, a lot of journalists, you know, a lot of journalists were imprisoned. Their best friends, Mel, uh, Carl and Shelley Maidens were captured by the Japanese and Mel and his wife ended up escaping uh, Manila on the basically the last boat out of the city while it was on fire uh, on New Year's Eve of 1941. And so 
um, they were two of only five journalists that were on Corregidor, which was the, the island in the Philippines where all the American forces were gathered uh, to uh, to sort of fight the war against the Japanese on Corregidor and on, on, uh, on Bataan. And so I went to, I didn't go to Bataan, but I did go to Corregidor and I was sort of trying to see where they'd been and the places they'd fled to and, and things like that. And, um, but yeah, that's what brought him there was, was the war. Wow. That's incredible. Um, in Bhutan or not Bhutan, but Bhutan that's, um, affiliated with the death march, right? wasn't there some obscene number of Americans that were captured and imprisoned there. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll probably get the numbers not quite right, but I believe there were something like 70,000 American soldiers on either Bataan or Corregidor and another 15,000, sorry, maybe 15,000 Americans and 70,000 Filipinos. See, this is the number I won't get right, but they were all under command of Douglas MacArthur. Right. And what happened was they surrendered Bataan to the Japanese on April 9th of 1942 and uh, were immediately marched to concentration camps uh, in elsewhere in the Philippines, but they're marched without water and they're marched, you know, without being fed across, you know, through really sweltering jungle temperatures, some barefoot, um, and some sick, some with malaria. So some, some many thousands of people. And again, I, I don't know the numbers correctly off the top of my head. I, I'm trying to make sure they're as accurate as possible in the book, but, um, you know, were you know, they died along the way and were forced to, I mean, they suffered just horrific, horrific conditions on that, on that March. And it was, um, it was really one of the darkest moments at that point ever. And for the American military and, and never had suffered any kind of situation in, of, to that extreme. You know, one of the reasons it happened, of course, was that the Americans in the Philippines were really poorly provisioned and they, they mm. didn't have the arms and the food they needed to really withstand a long-term siege. And so did, um, Mel then go on to become, um, uh, a, a journalist with time magazine or what happened with his career? So, so what Mel did was, uh, he, so he had been in, um, he had, sorry about that. He'd been in, uh, so he'd been on Corregidor, which was the, this fortress where everyone was, was staying with his wife and with a couple other journalists. And he had received word that a lot of the American officers were being warned to withdraw to Australia um, because it didn't look good for them, or they were being ordered to withdraw to Australia. And he, that he could get on a boat to leave that was headed there. It was a blockade runner. And he, he, so he boarded it because he wasn't able to send more than 500 words a day out to, to time. Uh, he, he, so he escaped in the dead of night with a couple other, uh, American passengers on this blockade runner that was headed back down through the Philippines and they would sail by night and hide out by day, uh, on a sort of trip through these many islands that, you know, comprise the Philippines. And they ultimately made it to Australia through a number of adventures and uh, sort of brushes with death and things like oh, wow. that, and uh, went back to reporting for time and and uh, 
worked for Time and Life magazine, and they, they basically brought the first pictures of what was going on on Bataan to the United States. Um, some of the first first-hand reports, although those other reporters that were in Corregidor also wrote stories, but uh, as far as I know, he was the first one with photographs of, of what was going on there. Uh, and this is what was going on before the death march. This is just the fighting, and because he got out uh, before the death march. Uh, but he knew many, many of the people that were captured and, and were, um, you know, killed. I mean, obviously there are many people to know, but, um, and then, he, and then, uh, they continued their reporting from Australia and, you know, there's what happened next. I, I like to keep a little, you know, a little bit of raps on because right. there's, um, that's some of what I think the book is really makes the, for the book really exciting, but, you know, suffice it to say that there were some great developments for both Mel and for Annalie, some really fascinating and some pretty sad and um involving their work with time and in other journalistic ways so this is going to be a really great book for those uh, kind of like up-and-coming journalists or those who have maybe worked in the profession um it, it's it's really kind of um capturing a very pivotal moment in american journalism huh yeah i mean you know what i i've, I've long known this story i've known about this story for about 10 years but um, what I, when I finally got to the point when I said, okay, I want to write a book about this. I mean, my grandma has had all these firsthand accounts that I've been looking at, you know, Mel's letters home and his photographs and, and other things that, that give you this sort of firsthand look. And I've been fascinated by it, but I didn't know what I'd do with them. We she always toyed with the idea of doing a book, but the thing that actually got me to say, okay, I want to actually make this into a book was, you know, in 2011, there was the Arab spring. And at that time there were just these people that were going to Tunisia and to Libya and to Egypt and other places in the Middle East to cover what was happening there and this massive change that was going on in the world. Just as young as Mel, just as brave, and there were also established reporters that were there and there were established reporters in Iraq and, you know, a lot of people who felt that the most important thing was not letting this story drop. And I was like, you know, this sounds very similar and this still happens. People are trying to make sense of world events, uh, for national audiences. Um, so that was the thing that, I mean, that was one of many sparks that sparked me to want to do a book yeah. about this. I, I don't get to get into many details about what's going on, you know, in the modern day, because I'm talking so much about this. I'm telling this story that happened 75 years ago, but I think it's it's very similar. You know, all the journalists that lived in China, for example, covering the war, they all lived together in one tight knit community in uh, in Chongqing. They all lived in the same building. You know, everyone who worked in from the West and covered that war were living in one building called that's, the press hostel. That's so fascinating because, like in Bosnia and Sarajevo, the city that was just completely under siege for three and a half years, all the reporters were living and working out of the Holiday Inn hotel there. Uh, Precisely. And the other um, comparison I would I would think is just technology. The way technology has changed in in um, the in Bosnia in 1994, for example, um, my my friend Bill Carter was able to connect with U2, who then beamed live interviews into live U2 concerts, which they only did because U2 donated hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for the incredible satellite technology that existed at the time whereas now in egypt during you know the arab spring um people were tweeting about it and in in comparing that to what these 
um, journalists were doing in the late thirties and early forties. I mean, it's, it's, there's a book right there. <laughs> Whoever is listening and wants to write it, there is an amazing book about the, the way that technology has changed journalism, um, in the 20th century moving into today. Well, I hope, I hope not too many people do that. Cause I'd still like to do some, you know, magazine articles about that or yeah. something like that. <laughs> you know, I did a story, uh, for, for boom, which is, um, it's called, called boom, a journal of California. It's put on the, by the, um, university of California, um, press and it was picked up by Gizmodo. And that was a story about, this was one of those sort of strange coinc- one of many strange coincidences in the book I'm working on. But it was about a guy named Dr. Charles Stewart, who was a dentist in uh, Ventura, California, which is my hometown. Uh, but I only learned about him while I was working on my own book. Uh, Stewart would get, he was a ham radio operator. That was his hobby. But he was such a good ham radio operator that people got him to do work from all over the world. And so he got hired by the Chinese government to take their broadcasts that they'd send from shortwave some from this underground radio station, send it across the Pacific. And then he'd receive it, record it onto, you know, records and then, um, transmit it to NBC or to the Chinese government who had, you know, like consular officials. And then they'd broadcast them or use them for other purposes. And Mel was the guy who was doing the radio broadcasts from the Chinese end. And he was getting the, either the stories out there or, you know, making sure that it was working technologically from that end. And I mean, I find it interesting that that was sort of the technology then that was the cutting edge technology then was shortwave radio. And how can you get that across? And also things like, uh, you know, telegrams and things like that. So technology has always played this huge role in what we are and are not able to do and in influencing what is and is not covered, you know, things like, you know, I, you know, I'm still fascinated by the fact that they could get photographs, you know, across the globe so quickly, even back then. But you read old, you know, meanwhile, you read old telegrams and they just read like tweets because they're concise and they're they're to the point. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And technology has its limits, too, because obviously we've seen Syria just grinding on for years now and nothing's changing. And, you know, we have videos. We know what's going on over there. But at a certain point, you know you know technology has its limitations um so when can people expect uh your book to come out then well my deadline for the manuscript is uh next month no well, i guess june because it's not quite may yet and uh then it goes through the whole editing process it's going to be published by william morrow and company which is a harper collins imprint and they you know the, the the aim is for spring of 2016 but of course it can change through the you know realities of how long it takes to you know get rights or to get various things hammered away at but i'd expect it between the spring and summer of 2016 okay and where can people go to learn more you can go to either billlasher.com that works it's l-a-s-c-h-e-r or uh lasher at large.com and that's l-a-s-c-h-e-r-a-t-l-a-r-g-e and that's my website Mm mm-hmm and so when you're not working as an author writing these um, prolific um, histories, uh, you're also doing, uh, you're practicing your dark art of journalism here locally in Oregon. Uh, you, you've written for Portland Monthly. You've done stuff with OPB. Um, what, what exactly are your focus? Are, are, are they directly related to your passions? Is this kind of more of a passion thing? I mean, this is sort of a passion thing, this book, but... My, you know, for a while, I was just telling someone the other day that my focus is sort of on the intersection of place and people and sort of, you know, 
ways that that places change because of people or way that ways that the ways that places change affect people so i like to do stories about the environment stories about how we interact with the environment stories about uh things like city infrastructure and transportation um things like disaster resilience i've done a lot of stories about disaster resilience um i'm also sort of this this project of this book has sort of reignited my passion for history mm-hmm. so i'm tr- i think i'm more interested in writing more things about history but in terms of the journalism i've done especially locally it's all been about um sort of unique existences with place so a lot about uh earthquake preparedness and resilience but but more about the science related to it and things that we are and are not prepared for i'm I'm thinking you know right now we see it again because just this weekend there was that horrible earthquake in nepal Mm -hmm. and you know it's just another story of something that people can't just cannot fully address and it it happens in this somewhat unpredictable way although we know the places that are at risk for earthquakes and Portland's one of them and we're completely underprepared for something like that. That's something I've repaired, reported on a lot is uh, how much our infrastructure is at risk. Uh, I did a story about two or three years ago about uh, the fact that, I mean, other people have reported on this, but the fact that Portland's um, bridges are just going to be a mess when we right. have a major earthquake. That bridge between Vancouver and uh, Portland, which is, uh, let, let us not forget, it's I-5. Um, that thing looks like it could fall down in a five-pointer. I mean, it's an old bridge. Well, that's the least of our worries. Really? Because, I mean, you for one thing, we still have the 210 bridge. The, what is that? The Glenn Jackson Bridge? Right, or 205 yeah. bridge, I guess. Yeah, um, 205. Um, but the problem is that all of our bridges across the Willamette are, are at risk, except for, I believe the, I'm going to, I'm going to probably get this one wrong. I believe the, the, maybe the, the Burnside bridge might be fully retrofitted to withstand the kind of quake that's expected here. Um, and if I'm wrong, I, I just am, but there's one bridge that I know has been properly vetted, but most of the other bridges are at risk, which means incredible congestion getting across. If the earthquake happens during the workday, you know, people are going to be stuck on the oh, west yeah. side. And um, there's a lot of other problems with, in terms of fuel lines and access to, to the city and, and the way that, that resources will get distributed here. What about the 405, though? That Wasn't that built in the 70s? That seems like it should have some um, earthquake savvy. I believe it was built in the 70s. Uh, some of the approaches to it, though, are still problematic, especially on the east side. Um, the problem is that in Portland and in, in, in Oregon in general, the, the the earthquake standards that exist here really weren't put into place until the 1990s. Oh, wow. And so um, some of the reporting I did a while ago, for example, you know, showed that the on the east side where, you know, the, the 405 comes up over um, the Mississippi district just below Mississippi, there's that that hill yeah you know there's an albino albina maintenance yard where there's a lot of city you know for a long time the city was keeping its road clearing equipment underneath ramps that were not expected to clear an earthquake so they (laughs) would be stranded there Uh, i believe some of that equipment has been moved i haven't been over there in a while because i know it wasn't moved for a long time after they said they would i mean that's a risk there are other things you know there are other stories that that are that are huge around here you know there's the columbia generating station near the hanford nuclear reservation is the you know um only commercial nuclear plant in the northwest and uh that is at risk from some local faults that 
have only recently been discovered and identified. Oh, great. You know, we have any number of, of places where these are issues. And then there are, you know, a lot of other unhardened assets that people know this is a problem, but they're just only make it a priority when earthquakes are in the news. Yeah, I'm at I'm at fault too. I have a I have a food pantry, and I'm always thinking I need to store you know food in case there's an earthquake. But then I always eat the food, <laughs> and I have maybe five gallons of water saved. And I think you're supposed to have what two and a half gallons a day for a week or something saved. Uh, you know, I probably shouldn't be quoted on this, but I believe the figure is 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 just a gallon a day. But you should have you, know, you should expect to have like a week's worth of of water. Um, you know, one of the tips that I always heard, I don't want to make be too like luxury about what someone should do, but I always thought this was a good tip for building a disaster kit was, you know, it's overwhelming to make a disaster kit in like one day, but every time you go to the grocery store, like buy one thing extra for the kit, that way you're not buying the whole kit. Yeah. I mean, you're still at risk for the earthquake happening the next day, but you know, um, you're, it's either one thing or nothing. Um, so I always thought that that was a great piece of advice, but um, yeah, I mean, the one thing that might save us is as, as corny as it sounds in Portland though, is our bike you know, our bike knowledge and the amount of oh, cargo yeah. bikes and things. That was the focus of my reporting. It's like, you know, like people with this, there's, there's even the disaster release trials where people are like competing to clear loads as quickly as possible. And we have all these weird elaborate bike, you know, networks that could become a really powerful thing when that, that happens. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I, I watched this guy riding down the street the other day and he had a, a cargo extension and he's towing his guitar. <laughs> And I was like, that guy just looks, he looks kind of like a nerd. Um, but one man's nerd is another man's hero in the next earthquake, I suppose. Yeah. And those nerds. And then also food carts, you know, we have these food cart pods all over the city. It, it sounds silly, but you know, what you've got there is this open space with mobile, semi-mobile, you know, construction that they're propane powered they're you know they've got food production abilities and they've got cleaning so if, if you're in a neighborhood with a food cart pod that may be your source if you can't get to food or water you know that maybe that's that's what happens and if you have some enterprising food cart owners wow. you know those people may may be the people you turn to for help so would you attribute this to the good lord working in mysterious ways <laughs> Well, I don't have the the strongest um, uh, thoughts on the the good lord. Okay, but Fair enough. Um, but you know, uh, I was. Gonna, I really put you on the spot there. I thought maybe you were trying to get me to sing you two's materi- I, mysterious <laughs> ways, which I could. You don't want to hear. No, so. I just threw down like fifty uh, landmines, and I was going to watch you try to walk through them. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's um. But I mean, it is part of like having this community, you know, we have such a community focused city and that's something that may come in, come in handy. And okay. So speaking about a community focus and, um, your local, uh, journalism career, um, I noticed recently on, t- uh, Twitter, not Tinder, Twitter, that you had somewhat of a, can I call it a spat with Martin Sismar, uh, from Willamette week? Uh, what was that all about? What happened there? You know, I, I think a lot of people have spats with Martin Sismar from Willamette week. And, um, I don't remember the specific spat in general because I feel like he's chosen to call me and other people out on, on a couple things. Um, but I think that happens. I think if, if you question uh, some people on the way that they're reporting or the way that they're covering something, it will come back to haunt you. Um, <laughs> Do you think he has a bone to pick because you worked for the Mercury for a while? I don't know. I, know, cause I, I only freelance for the Mercury. I mean, I freelanced a number of times, but um, 
I don't know what bone he has to pick, but he's picked it a couple times, and I don't, you know, that's how that happens. Um, he he totally has his rights to have his opinions or be bothered by whatever happens. I think maybe he feels that he's attacked when people criticize his reporting or the Willamette Week's reporting. Um, but you know, um, that's okay. I mean, people people have different opinions and different personalities, and mm-hmm. um, I have noticed that other people have been. Um, also felt uncomfortable with his his, his yeah. persona, but maybe yeah, that's just he, who he is. He really pissed off the city of Salem when he slammed their entire uh, beer brewing culture <laughs> in the last week's episode. I mean, not episode, but uh, Willamette Week. But, um, you know, I, I don't have any spat with him. I don't think you really do either. I think he was just getting kind of snarky for fun's sake. Um, he, he seems like a very nice guy, and he does really great work. So I don't. I, that was more of a joke. I wasn't really trying to brew up some <laughs> controversy. Um, but I'm just looking over here at our time, and yeah, it looks so. like we are pretty much out of time. Oh wow! Somehow we managed to speak for 45 minutes. Well, mostly you. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's why you're here because yeah. I can't talk for 45 minutes. Um, but anyways, I would just like to thank you again for coming. Thank you. Um, can you please plug your website one more time? Oh. I thought I was going to have to plug something in. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lasheratlarge.com. That's L-A-S-C-H-E-R-A-T-L-A-R-G-E. And I'm starting to realize it's too long. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, there's obviously so many interesting things to talk about. I didn't even get to everything here on my list. So yeah. maybe after your book comes out and after the podcast gets um, many, many dozens of listeners, we could have you on to talk about your book again. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, thanks again. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Me and My Friends podcast starring Bill Lasher today and me um, always. and I always kind of do these awkward goodbyes because I actually don't really know how to... Well, that's good because I was about to say... I was feeling, oh, God, I didn't get to say thank you for having me. And thank you for having oh, me. Yeah. So this is perfect awkward spot. Yeah, no problem. And the other awkward thing is that I've had to pee really bad <laughs> for like 15 minutes. And I kept thinking, like, maybe I should get up while you're talking and like try to... <laughs> but I could have kept talking, so... <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. And uh, over and out, I guess. Uh, whatever. Whatever.